Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, just a quick reminder about some of the Elixir conferences that are coming up. One is ElixirConf EU in Warsaw, Poland, September 9th and 10th. And then there's also the ElixirConf US 2021. It's going to be a four-day event, two days in person, two days virtual in Austin, Texas. October 12th and 13th is the physical part, and the online part is the 14th and 15th. Speaking of conferences, Codebeam Brazil posted their videos from 2020. So pretty nice to see some of those. Uh, Check out a link uh, to go find those videos. And this next block of items is all about Livebook. So let's just kind of go through this and, and review what's been going on here. So one, Livebook gets reactive inputs. Just to kind of share from the PR, when a cell reads an input, we bind the cell to that input. When someone submits the input, generally using the enter key, we reevaluate the associated cell. Then the cell can be marked reactive, which implies that we automatically reevaluate the associated cells whenever its value changes. I think it's just cool because, you know, with Live View, we just kind of take for granted that these inputs can be responsive and very fast reacting. And it kind of surprised me. It's like, oh, yeah, it hasn't been like that. So I just kind of thought, like, oh, yeah, that this is an, uh, an obvious win, but it's just really nice to see that. And then there's a the little video that it goes along with it showing how it's just kind of very responsive, reactive, like when you're changing uh, chart data and things like that. So it's saving you a click, huh, from, from hitting the reevaluate button? Yep, but it also looks pretty when it's doing it. <laughs> That's the important part right there. <laughs> okay. Then next up in live book, uh, in our live book section of the news, which happens every week, live book gets input color selectors now. Uh, so we have a link to the other PR that shows uh, shows a video that might explain it better. But uh, now you can customize the the colors of your charts. So we were just talking about how it's important to look good, and now you can. <laughs> Customize it to your heart's content. You can make it as pretty or as ugly as you'd like, (laughs) which is always fun. They showed a chart where it's blending from one color to another and just changing and using like a color picker to select the color. And then it stores that chosen color as a hex string in the live book markdown. (laughs) You know what live book needs? More tailwind, more CSS, more, (laughs) more JavaScript. I'm just kidding. I don't I don't think they use Tailwind. But, you know, might as well just throw a bunch of churn in there. <laughs> That's right. And next is that so one of the things we've talked about Livebook being really good for is a potential way where it can be used for education and instruction. And even library authors can use it to say, hey, here's how this library works. And I saw an article by Kai Wern where he did just that, where he was documenting and explaining how to use the Recon Trace library. So the Recon Trace is an Erlang module written by Fred Hebert that handles tracing in a safe manner for single Erlang nodes, currently for function calls only. And Kai comments and says, you know, I always have to go and look up how to do this because, you know, you do it so infrequently that you have to refer to the docs. And so he's like, well, I'm just going to write up a notebook that shows all the ways that I use it and all the things I keep forgetting that are important. And he wrote that up in a notebook and shared that notebook publicly. So that's just a great example of how we can use Livebook to share knowledge as a resource for yourself and potentially with anyone else who wants to grab that notebook. 
That's pretty cool. Yeah, I like I like both of these things. Uh, re, uh, for tracing, I don't do tracing enough. It's something I I I really need to learn more about. But the other thing is just knowing how to use it. And so yeah, that's that's great for LiveBook to just illustrate that plainly how to do a trace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, lo- I love the combination of this. This is this is awesome. We would love to hear about the things that you see going on in the community that we're missing. Are there things going on with your projects or a conference that you're involved with or other things that you see happening in the Elixir community? Please just let us know at Thinking Elixir on Twitter. And that's it for the news. Today, we are being joined by our special guest, Philip Schmida. Philip, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Philip, I saw this blog post you wrote, and I got to admit, it was pretty clickbaity and teasy with the title. <laughs> but I loved where you went with it. And what you're talking about is an experience you had creating a live view application and you ran into some challenges and some difficulties. But what I loved is that you shared the process that you went through of diagnosing it and fixing it and the outcome. So I think that's a great thing we can talk about and share and learn from. So thank you for coming on. But before we jump into that, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? So my name is Philip. I live in Bamberg, which is in the north of Bavaria, which is in the south of Germany. And I um, run my own one-man software development company. I've been doing this pretty much uh, since the second I finished school. And I started out uh, with learning Quick Basic when I was uh, still in high school. Then I went to Pure Basic, ended up with C++. And then unsurprisingly for many uh, Elixir devs, probably I ended up with Ruby for a while until <laughs> I found Elixir. That's really fun because I had a similar kind of path, you know, QBasic and Quick Basic, and then went into Turbo Pascal, which was Borland's Delphi, played with C++, and then C Sharp and Ruby, and then Elixir. So it's kind of a fun path there. That's actually a pretty similar uh, path that, that I took as well, except uh, Quick Basic. I don't know if that was where I started. I started with Visual Basic. Mm-hmm. I remember installing Visual Basic, the IDE, I, I think. Uh, from some three and a half inch floppy disks <laughs> given to me by my grandpa and just learning about how, how you know, everything over there was subroutines, right? So that, that was the word sub everywhere. But then I put it down for a long time and yeah, and then came back to it. I uh, never dived into C, C like you did though, Philip. Um, but yeah, then came back uh, a short stint in Java, short, short stint in Python, and then finally landed in Ruby for a good, good long while. Java and Python are actually languages that I never used. Um, I just never found them very appealing. Uh, I, I just couldn't live with Python having a meaningful white space. So <laughs> it was not good for me. Yeah, yeah I, I ran into that so many times because uh, <laughs> my situation at, at work, I wasn't a programmer, right? I just somehow I was granted this, uh, this, this old uh, computer that didn't, that was just being trashed, right? So they gave it, they, I asked for it, they, they, they gave it to me. I loaded Ubuntu on it, and I worked professionally on a Windows computer right next to it. So I had these two computers, and <laughs> I, the, the Ubuntu one was the server that would run these various scripts that uh, I was not paid to write, but I, I <laughs> but I, I wrote it for myself to help automate my own job. 
And I know exactly what you mean because I would just, I would write it on my Windows machine, my Python on on the Windows machine in some Java, and then I would just copy it over <laughs> via jump drive over to my Ubuntu machine, and stuff would stop working. <laughs> it was because of the the white space. I was so uh, the new lines too. I think is what yes. I, what screwed up too. Uh, there's just so much stuff that was just so bothersome. Uh, so yes, I, I vowed uh, in that moment that yes, uh, white space in languages uh, should not matter. <laughs> Yeah, but then, you know, Ruby is really, or was really kind of a game changer, having this more natural syntax to it, um, and then just focusing on the developer experience much more. And when I first saw it, I was, I was like, oh, I have to do something with this language. I mean, Elixir inherited a lot of these characteristics from Ruby, and uh, that makes it very pleasant to use, I find. Yeah, so I, I don't want to I don't want to dog on Ruby for for too long or or Python or any other good language there. They're all good languages. But speaking of learning from mistakes, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, I I started writing Ruby, started doing some more uh, process intensive kind of tasks, and I felt like I hit a ceiling with with Ruby and uh, with and with Rails, and that was understanding multi uh, multi thread processing or concurrency. It just it wasn't so much that they didn't have the tools for it; it was just that I, I couldn't grasp it myself. The I didn't feel like I could understand it. That the jump from regular Ruby programming to really, really good Ruby programming to me, which would leverage threading and all that, seemed like a, a big jump versus learning a whole new language that I was learning about called Elixir. I, I could actually grasp that. I, I felt like I could understand it a little bit better. So that, that jump to being um, multi-threaded, you know, I know those terms don't exactly comply over here in, in Elixir, but the, the actor model, really, I guess, is where I'm going at, uh, just made a lot more sense to me. So, you know, your article is about learning from mistakes. You have a very specific scenario. It's not about, you know, jumping from Ruby to Elixir necessarily. But tell me about what your experience is from, from learning from mistakes. I think in general, we like to, you know, read stories about people who found success. And they're inspiring and everyone loves those. But sometimes it can be much more useful to uh, read about someone's failures. Because then you can avoid making those same failures. I like to think that I don't mind being wrong because after I learned that I was wrong, I will no longer be wrong, right? So that was the idea behind writing this article. I just find it to be a general truth that we learn more from mistakes than a success. Like if the first time I try to do something and it works, I don't actually know why it worked. Like if I tweak this part of it or that part of it, will it still work? Because I don't know if those are important to its success. So I believe we actually learn more from our mistakes and our failures. So you just kind of have to embrace that, right? And that's the idea of, well, I'm just going to keep going and I'm going to fail at this and I'm going to keep going until I figure out what the magic pieces are to make this work. And I think just if you're coming to programming, you have to be comfortable with that because every time you hit a new library that you're using or a new language or a new like actor model message passing paradigm, you're going to make mistakes. And that's okay. That's how you learn what's important and how it actually comes together. So I, I loved the idea of sharing, hey, this is the mistakes I ran into. And this is what I learned from it. I actually find it pretty important in, in, in my language, not just not, not language as an elixir, but like my verbal language. Admitting that you're wrong, you know, opens up the conversation a little bit more gently a little bit more uh inviting i think with with folks so you know oftentimes in pr reviews and such like you know i'll, I'll point out something that i that i think is wrong 
and then they'll they'll respond to me in the PR and say, uh, no, I think it's I think it does work because of this, this and this and this. And like, OK, you're, I'm wrong. You're absolutely right. Let's you know, let's keep on trucking. And I think that, you know, that admitting these these kinds of failures, these kinds of mistakes, minor to large, you know, are pretty important to having to building a community, really. Right. Building that trust with folks, even if it's not trust built on the fact that you're always right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So maybe you can kind of introduce us to what this application was that you were talking about in this blog post and just this experience you had. So what is the problem you're trying to solve and give us some background there? So I built this application back in 2019 for an organization called Volt, and they are a political movement in, in Europe, and they needed to organize their general assembly. And they chose Sofia in Bulgaria for the location. And if you're somewhat familiar with European geography, um, Sofia is not very central in Europe. So it was difficult to ensure that everyone could participate. And they wanted to allow all of their members to, to participate in this event. And so they decided that there should be a way to do that online. And that's when I came in because I was volunteering uh, at the time as tech lead of Vault Europa. And uh, basically, in three or four weeks, hacked together this little program, which functioned as a platform where people could see the live stream, but where the event organizers could also share messages and share votes that people could then participate in. One of the things I like that you said that I hadn't really caught before is that you were volunteering as part of this political parties. So I think that's cool. So it wasn't even a paid engagement, right? You're like, I'm just taking some of my extra time to build this out and see how I can help. Is that right? Exactly. It took a lot of time and work still. Uh, and eventually later, I did some freelancing for that organization. But at that time, I was um, volunteering. Nice. So how did you go about architecting this? It sounds like because this is an Elixir podcast, I assume Elixir was involved. So is this a live view app or is it a mobile app? Or like what, what does it actually look like? So it's a live view app um, that can be used both on mobile and on desktop browser. And it's entirely created in Elixir with essentially no JavaScript. Because I had just seen Chris McCourt's introduction of live view like a few months earlier at ElixirConf EU and thought this would be the perfect opportunity to give it a try. So I really tried to write this without doing any client-side logic. It was all completely uh, rendered in the live view. Another thing that I tried was to go with this paradigm that's somewhat specific to Elixir, that is, your database doesn't have to be the center of everything. So instead of building this as a database-centric application, I ended up building it as a gen-server-centric application, where only some of the state was actually persisted to a database. So maybe that kind of leads into this topic of what the event was, because it's not database driven. This is all about like a real time event with people and motions and a political gathering. So maybe you can explain a little bit more about how that's actually working. What are the delegates doing or, or the participants? The platform uh, also contains a mailing component. Uh, it sends out a link to every member that's personalized. And when they click on it, they are automatically locked in and authenticated. And once they are, they can see the live stream of the event as it's going on. And they can see votes and they can click on yes, no, or abstain to participate in those. And the event organizers, in turn, can, of course, see the results of the votes. So that does sound like a good use case for live view, right? Like you're putting up a motion or a, something to vote on, 
it's a real time thing. You have like a window of time where it's open. Everyone can put in their votes and then you like move on to the next agenda item. I think Live View sounds like a good fit. So you're getting ready for a big event, right? Like where is this that has to scale? Is that where this problem comes in? Exactly. So initially I built this in 2019 for the European General Assembly of Volt. Um, but since then, the party has grown a lot and more and more local chapters of Volt wanted to use it and um, including the German chapter. And they had also grown to several thousand members by then. Here's where things went wrong. I tried to optimize it because I had noticed that um, the way I had built it was a somewhat naive approach to building such an application in live view. It caused a lot of CPU usage because it did things like um, poll for updates every second and it, it calculated remaining uh, time of open votes on the server instead of on the client. And that works uh, very well if you have only a couple of users, but if you're going into hundreds or thousands of users, it becomes problematic. So I tried to make some optimizations and I tested them locally. I uh, saw that CPU usage went down greatly and I thought, looks good. I'm, I'm going to deploy it. And uh, there was a big event of for Germany just ahead. And I thought it would be the perfect opportunity to give it a try in real life. <laughs> And how did that go? <laughs> <laughs> well, it didn't go uh, super well. I was up early making sure I had the server monitoring on. And after a few minutes after the event had started, the server just had died. And I had no idea why. So I restarted it, kept looking at HTOP, and I just saw the RAM going up and up and up and up on this 32 gigabyte RAM instance. So that's a lot of RAM, right? Yeah. And I restarted it again. Same thing happened. And I decided it was time to pull the plug and roll back to an older version. One thing I can appreciate is just that you had the ability to roll back. You know, Because sometimes I've worked in teams where it's like, well, if we encounter a problem, we're just marching forward. We're just going to fix it and going forward. That works a lot of times depending on the, the kind of bug you run into. But sometimes it's like a critical failure like that. And you need the ability to roll back. That sounds great that you were able to do that. Was that a hard thing or an easy rollback mechanism? In this case, I had been extra careful. I let up an instance of the old version that was still running. So all I had to do was shut down the new server, change some Nginx redirects, and we were set to go within like 45 minutes or so. The event was able to actually happen then, is that right? Exactly. It happened just with the older version with super high CPU usage, but lower RAM usage and no crashes. <laughs> so then you're like okay it's done Whew, i can i can relax now you're like trying to figure out what happened that's one of the the learnings that i appreciated that came out of your blog post is just kind of like how you went about and the tooling that you used to help figure this out so maybe you can kind of walk us through what happened there yeah but before you do though I, something that you didn't mention that I, I want to point out in your article is that you avoided one bit of complexity already by having a beefy server instead of a bunch <laughs> of small little servers right right um so there's one lesson here that you know may not have been learned through this experience, but many others have probably learned in their own their own journeys that yeah if you can reduce complexity by having one large server and that can do all of it versus leveraging some of the features of Elixir where it's distributed or Erlang, you know, it can do the distributed processing and all that kind of stuff, talk to each other's nodes. It's good. The tool is there, but you, you didn't introduce that layer of complexity yet. Okay. 
So, <laughs> so there's, there's one thing. And then what's, what's some of the things that you, you learned? <laughs> well, maybe I can add something to that still. Sure. Um, because one of the cool things when using Elixir is that you might be bounded by RAM, but the CPU bounds are not as important because the way Erlang manages to um, schedule all the work it has to do, the application still remains reactive even if you're at 99% CPU. Some things might go a bit slower, but the application will generally still work. And that's what I found and it was pretty great. Nice takeaway. So coming back to how you started to diagnose this issue, I noticed that in there you talked about using the crash dump viewer. For those uh, who haven't used it before or weren't aware that this was in the Elixir and Beam ecosystem, maybe you can kind of tell people what it is. Sure. So you might have heard about Observer. That's an application built into Erlang. You can open it if you type colon observer.start into IEX. And then you get this uh, GUI window and in it you can click on file, I think open crash dump or something like that. And then you can find the what's it called, Earl underscore crash dot dump file that uh, you get when an, an Elixir application crashes. And it shows you some information about the processes before they died. Yeah, so if you've ever noticed that you're working on your local development, you, dear listener, and it crashes, sometimes it'll say writing crash dump. I'm, I'm not sure if that's the exact phrasing that it uses, but that's what it's doing. It's creating this large file that is dumping everything that was going on in memory as like a snapshot kind of its state at the time it died. It's a great little tool just to be aware that it exists. Observer is your interface for it. You had a server set up in this situation where your crash dump was available. So you pull that down, you open up with Observer. And what does that look like? How big is this file? Is this like a 32 gig file? Not quite. It was 1.5 gigabytes. Uh, still pretty large. I wasn't able to immediately gain much information from it. I saw that it was, in fact, Elixir that had occupied all this memory. So one of the processes had uh, several thousands messages queued up. And since that process had also used up 30 gigabytes of RAM, I assume that was the guilty party. Yeah, so today I learned about the crash dump viewer. I've had to look at crash dumps before, but... Like a noob, I just opened them up in Vim. <laughs> They're and not just... super human friendly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I mean, I was still able to find what was the issue. Thank goodness. Um, but yeah, today I learned there's a GUI built into uh, Erling for viewing crash dumps. It's, uh, it's crashdumpviewer.start. You know, if you're doing it from IEX, right? So colon crashdump underscore viewer.start. And then that'll open it up. It's pretty neat. But yes, I, I just opened up uh, Observer. And under the file menu, there's only like two items in mine. It's examine, crash, dump, and quit. So examine, crash, dump prompts for a file where you select it, and then it opens up the observer looking at that snapshot of data. So I think there are maybe a couple ways to get into that. So that's great. And well, honestly, it's like when that was mentioned in the blog post, it's one of those things like, oh, yeah, I've used that before, and I totally forgot about it, right? It's just not something I've had to reach for very often. So I was glad for the, the reminder of this feature because you look at this kind of tooling that's available in the Beam and you just come to appreciate how mature it is, how long Erlang has been here, how much they've had to already solve and deal with. Just a lot of that kind of tooling is already available. We just have to become aware of it and reach for it. It's also one of the great things about using LiveView because it lets you do so many things so easily without having to put in a lot of work. So maybe we can come return back to the story. 
you were able to identify, okay, we've got this process. It's got thousands of unprocessed messages. It was crashing. So were you able to figure out what was the problem? You've taken this optimization pass and tried to make it more efficient for CPU. So while trying to optimize the application, I moved um, from polling constantly to using PubSub. And it's great for performance. But in this case, uh, the way I had implemented it, it ended up broadcasting too many events too often. And in this case specifically, there are a couple of admin users who are the ones who can open the votes and see the voting results. And they also get a list of all the participants. And so each time one of the participants would log in, an entirely updated list of participants would be broadcast to them. And as hundreds of people were logging in at the same time, hundreds and hundreds of these messages were piling up with um, a handful of these admin accounts. And uh, that actually cost the excessive RAM consumption. Gotcha. So thinking about some of the details here, you had PubSub, you were getting a message in. Was it that these admin live view processes that were running because they were storing all of the participants in memory? Is that is that where it got eaten up with memory? Because you had you had a you know a handful of these admin processes with entire lists of thousands of participant structs, I, I presume, loaded and staying in memory, right? No, I don't think the issue was um, storing them in memory uh, in the live view. The issue was that too many of these broadcasts were piling up, gotcha. so they were somewhere in between the processes and weren't processed uh, weren't being processed fast enough. And I guess if the data that was being tracked on each participant was large to any amount, you know, then what you're broadcasting becomes a large message. And that's one of the things, you know, when you're coming to the Elixir ecosystem, when we were talking about the actor pattern and message passing, one of the things you become aware of when data is sent from one process to another, it really, it really works if you think about it as people, right? If you model this as people like these processes, and we have the three of us here. And if I want to send a message to Philip, I'm going to write it down on a piece of paper. So I've created a copy of what's in my head, my local state, put it onto a piece of paper. So now I have a copy on paper and I send that to Philip. He gets that and then he makes a copy of that in his brain. So it's when we cross these process boundaries that we're making copies. And the size of that data becomes really important. If it's really large and we're sending it a lot, then it's like your mailbox is getting slammed with junk mail. It might not even be junk. It's like, this is all relevant, but it's just, it's too much. Yeah. And another thing that happens is that Live View issues updates to the clients each time the assigns get updated. So if you have a lot of assign updates, you just get a ton of updates to your clients, which will ultimately even crash your clients in the browser. Okay. So, so thinking through a potential solution here, maybe this is not what you did. But it looks like you would have to debounce these. You're still gonna you're still gonna pub sub and and broadcast this out. Perhaps you would only broadcast IDs, maybe not the entire thing. Maybe once the broadcast is out, you mark each of the live view admin processes as being stale, and then maybe you have another timer on that live view process that would check am I stale, and if so, go fetch the differences. You know, go load the participants, whatever it needs to be. And then that would be one update to the client at that point. Is that a solution that you came to? Is that is that a similar solution? What did you do? Exactly. It's very similar to what I ended up doing. I um, changed from sending the entire payload with um, PubSub. That was one thing I changed, even though 
I think you can actually send large payloads with PubSub. It can also be dangerous, as we saw in, in this case. And then what I did was instead just send a notification via PubSub and then let the live view pull the data afterwards. I'm reading your article here. I see the process participants interval. You got a second on there. And I see participants stale uh, in there. So that's that's happening at the, at the gen server level. I see. So what I did was I made the gen server keep track of um, whether its own state had become stale since the last broadcast. And then I throttled it at that level. So when the state had been stale for too long, the gen server would send another update to the to the live view processes. I see. Okay. So yeah, that's where the debounce kind of effect was happening. Okay. So having gone through this process, were you totally like turned off and like, oh, live view just, it sucks. It can't do what I want. Or what was the lesson you kind of took away from this? No, absolutely not. I mean, if you've read my article, it starts with praising LiveView as being one of the greatest <laughs> inventions in web development in recent years. <laughs> it just showed that I had been using it incorrectly. And my my takeaway was to not use it incorrectly anymore. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, it's yeah. best if you, if you do things right instead of wrong. So you have a nice summary at the end of, uh, of your article. So I guess we can repeat that, right? Is, you know, number one. Avoid large payloads in PubSub, in, in phoenix.pubsub, if possible. So we, we talked about that. Another solution was to throttle PubSub events. You said at the, at the sender level to avoid clogged process inboxes. That, at the sender level, that makes a lot of sense. I think when I was thinking through it, I was debouncing it at the receiver level. So mm. uh, there's, a, there's a difference there. There's, there's probably a big difference there. <laughs> When you think about the number of messages being sent, yeah, it's like if you if you don't throttle it at the sender level, then you're still sending like every time there's a message, you're taking that one message and multiplying it by every participant. Yeah. So yeah, so I think that that is a great place to add some of that logic. Yeah. And then the, the final lesson that, that you summed up was using is that when you use the assign function in LiveView, that always sends an update downstream to the WebSocket, even if there is no real HTML diff, you know, so if the client doesn't really see anything. Exactly. So even even if you even if you update an assign that you're not using in your template, it will still send an empty update to the client. So if you do that a thousand times in a second, it will crash your client. Okay. I'm gonna think out loud here for a second, but I, I wonder if so you're using a sign here. I wonder if there was an opportunity with large list to use something like a sign and, and mark it as, as temporary. Would that have affected anything here for you, you think? So I ended up using uh, temporary assigns for certain other components. But in that case, I don't think it would have, it would have changed much. Yeah. The difference there, you know, for everyone else to understand too, I think is, is that uh, marking it as a temporary assign, I think avoids keeping that state in the live view process. In my head, if I have a list of like 10,000 participants, how important is it that those 10,000 participants are still loaded persistently, you know, in the live view process versus loading it once to generate the HTML? sending the HTML and then dropping this that assign from continuing to live in, in your live view process. So there's a memory optimization there. Exactly. I, I was not doing it for the user lists because that only concerns a couple of 
users, like just a handful of admin users in these events. But I'm doing it for the messages that the event organizers can send to everyone. So the live view will pull for messages when it starts and then mark those as uh, temporary. And each time new messages come come in, they are rendered uh, and not kept in memory because it's not necessary. So maybe another thinking out loud moment here. This feels like it intersects with the solutions that Phoenix Presence might be able to provide. Did you look into that? And were there any opportunities there to use Phoenix Presence or was that completely irrelevant? Yeah, some people have suggested using Phoenix Presence. I don't think it would have fit this exact use case. Um, There is another module called Phoenix Tracker. I think that could probably work better in this case. But using either would have required me to rewrite uh, a whole bunch of the application. And it was not necessary. I could just implement these uh, optimizations that I mentioned, and it's working quite well now. Gotcha. So if you wrote the application again, do you think, you know, from scratch, do you think you you would use Phoenix Tracker or Phoenix Presence? I would certainly consider it, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to mention one other potential uh, architecture design, you know, for someone else who's who's coming up to this problem, uh, something similar. Another way to think about it, I'm not suggesting in any way, Philip, that you should go like re-architect your whole application, <laughs> especially if it's working successfully. <laughs> so this is just like, hey, let's just play with this and see what other ideas we have. Uh, so another w- thought was, you know, I kind of described this idea of people and creating a copy of some message onto a piece of paper and giving it to the other person as a way of sharing that data. There's another model that works with ETS tables. So I can imagine you have this gen server, this centralized point. The gen server can own an ETS table. An ETS table must be owned by a process. So you can have a gen server that owns an ETS table. And as it gets data that comes in, it can write it to the ETS table. And you have all these different settings with ETS tables where you can say, you know, who can read it, who can write to it. And if the gen server is the only one that can write to it, and all processes can concurrently, simultaneously read from it, then the the mental model of this is it's like a big airplane departures, arrivals kind of board of this is what's going on with everybody right now. Who all the members are that are currently participating, maybe any votes that uh, were cast, their their data could be there. And then what the pub sub might be is just the tiniest message of this was updated. And then all the live view processes that are currently subscribed, they can go and read concurrently from the ETS table. So that's another model. I'm just mentioning that out there for anyone who's thinking like, hey, that might that might work. So it's just something to play with. I would still want to experiment with that and see if it would actually fit this kind of a situation. Yeah, actually refactoring to using ETS tables is on my to-do list uh, for when we need when, when we reach the next uh, level of member growth. Because right now we're at a couple of thousand people who will use this platform concurrently, so it's fine the way it is. But I think if you go to a couple of 10,000 uh, people concurrently, it would definitely make sense to upgrade to using ETS tables. And I do think David's earlier point about it still being a single machine solves a lot of the other distribution problems that you would have because the ETS table only lives on one, on one of those nodes, those Elixir nodes. So you'd still have to like have a lot of cross node message passing and stuff like that. So having a single large machine just makes that a whole lot simpler. Absolutely. And because this is uh, a kind of event that takes place only every so often, you can then scale the server down and scale it up again as you need it. Yeah. So Philip, 
having had this experience, you said, you know, even though you, you realized, okay, I was, I was using it wrong, there's some humility there, which I appreciate. So I'm asking, is this stack, like using LiveView for something like this, is this something you would recommend to other people? Absolutely. I think this project even shows that it's very much possible if you're just a single developer or a small team to build really cool applications with uh, Elixir and LiveView. You don't have to be a big company. Especially if you use the uh, Petal stack where you also add in Alpine JS for, for some additional client interactivity. It makes it so easy to build an application if you're on your own or in a small team. And that's not possible if you, if you try to juggle backend languages and frontend languages. So what's next for this project or for you? Because this was originally a something you volunteered to do. And you say, is the party continuing to grow? Do you have plans for the future? So yeah, the party keeps growing and um, chapters all over Europe have used uh, the application for organizing their assemblies. And since then, I've taken a component that was previously part of this and created a separate application from it that other people can also use. I've open sourced it on GitLab. It's called Kyla and it's um, an application that lets you send newsletters. So basically like MailChimp, it's open source um, it's released under the AGPL v3 license, and I'm going to also offer a SaaS option of it soon. And it kind of grew out of this project because, like I said, the platform for the party also included a mailing component. Cool. Are you looking for any kind of contribution for people to help out on the code? People at Vault are always looking for contributors who can code. If you are an Elixir dev and interested in helping, then feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. If you want something that is not so political, you are also super welcome to contribute to Kyla, the mailing component. Uh, you can check it out on, on GitHub. So if people want to follow you online or get in touch with you, then maybe they have a follow-up question or something like that. What's the best way for them to get in touch with you? You can reach out to me on Twitter at Pentacent underscore HQ. And so Pentacent is the name of your consultancy. Is that right? Exactly. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. Uh-huh.